Hey guys, welcome back to the Real Estate Monopoly. My name is Kerwin. And my name is Kenneth. And this is the Real Estate Monopoly. And today we are very excited to be here. Kenneth, how are you doing? I'm doing phenomenal, man. You know, almost halfway through the week, very yes. busy, but name one stressor blessed. right now. Top stressor. Uh capital raising. Think okay, that cool. I think that's a stressor cool. for everyone nowadays. Cool. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And also, of course, though, uh, we're just very excited to have an amazing guest here today and kind of break up our our our, our routine and just have an amazing conversation. So Yona, please say hello to the audience. Hello to the audience. Awesome. Welcome to the podcast, guys. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. I was expecting uh, with Jeff also, Jeffrey, but yeah. I guess sometimes uh, yeah. you do it two, three. Well, see, the thing is, it's kind of hard to fit three of us in the screen <laughs> <Yeah>. sometimes. <laughs> so we upgrade our, our camera. No, yeah, honestly, though, um, it, it can be challenged. But Yona, I'm going to give your background because this is an amazing background. Yona is the business director at Madison Specs, a national cost segregation leader, and he's assisted clients in saving hundreds of millions of dollars of taxes through cost segregation, which we're going to break down today. Um, he also has a background in teaching and a passion in real estate and for helping others. And he's a real estate investor, and he's also the host of the pod, the top podcast, Weiss Advice, which is an awesome name uh, for a podcast. And it's coincidentally rhymes. I'm just kidding. That's not a coincidence. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for being here, Yona. I'd love to just by start starting off. Can you walk us through how you got into real estate? And yeah, I mean, give us a little bit of background leading up to real estate. Sure. Yeah. As you mentioned there, I was a teacher for many years. That's really my background. Still is in a lot of ways, because I feel like a lot of what I do carries over into my current role. Um, but at a certain point, I realized I just you know, wasn't making enough money to make ends meet. And I needed to find something else on top of the teaching, even though that was my passion. And I had, I'd started a nonprofit for you know, many years ago while mm -hmm. I was teaching to help underprivileged people, people who had gone through, you know, uh, stressful life events, like health crises, a death in the family, things like that. And, you know, was dealing with a lot of families that had gone through trauma and trying to raise money to, to help them, to help defray costs and things like that. And I had something like, you know, something similar happened to me. And I was like, well, thank God it wasn't so big, but I'm like, well, I need to be prepared and prepare my family for such a thing. So I don't have to have them going out and, and asking for money or asking mm -hmm. whatever it was. So that was a big turning point for me. It just kind of had that realization. And this was about like seven years ago or so. And I just reached out to a bunch of friends and like, Hey, what do you think I should, you know, do something, a high side hustle, something on the, and a lot of people said real estate. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm open to anything. Mm -hmm. kind of open to opportunities at that point. Uh, read a couple of books and one uh, one thing led to another. Just met some friends, met some guy, and he was like, "Hey, why don't you come come work with me? I'm doing commercial mortgages, mortgages, underwriting, and stuff like that. Underwriting and uh, and originating." I was like, "Okay, sure. I don't know a thing about it." He taught me everything about commercial real estate. Pretty amazing. And I, I just apprenticed by I, I sat in his office like four days a week for uh, for about eight nine months and just learned a tremendous amount. Uh, and then did some fix and flips, got my real estate broker's license to just learn about residential real estate. And one thing led to the other and opportunity after opportunity came my way until I met this company, Madison, that I'm currently working for. And been very happy since, since then. I mean, that's five years now working with them. And it's just been amazing. And with through that, I've been able to invest in other deals as a limited partner, passively investing, and then also as a, as a general partner and, and kind of shifting my gears in more into that direction as time yeah. goes on. Yeah, and that's awesome. And we've heard so much about Madison Specs. I mean, um, like, I feel like they're synonymous with 
cost segregation and multifamily cost segregation and uh, Madison Specs is always coming up. So can you maybe provide some more context for anyone in the audience that isn't familiar with what Madison Specs does? Sure. So Specs is actually an acronym. It's a double entendre because it means like building plans, but it also means uh, it's, a, it's an acronym for specialized property engineering cost segregation. So cost segregation, we'll get into what that is. It's actually a branch of a larger commercial real estate company called Madison Commercial Real Estate Services, and most known for actually title. So Madison Title is, is the largest national commercial title agent in the country. Um, and they have a bunch of companies under them. One of them is Madison 1031, the QI and the Madison Specs, which came about, I'd say about, I think 17 years ago when uh, they had a need for this and kind of one of the, the founders came from a background in uh, accounting, public accounting and ran the cost irrigation at like a large national accounting company, like uh, said Grant Thornton, I think, and KPMG, some of the huge, you know, accounting firms. And, and so they just started it. Uh, over the years, we've obviously grown. And up to this point, we're doing about 5,000 cost segregation studies a year. Uh, not just multifamily, every single asset class it can be done for, uh, from single mm -hmm. family up to, you know, office skyscrapers and everything in between. And yeah, it's just, it's just been incredible to be part of the growth uh, I think, you know, me having appeared on 300 podcasts and done hundreds of webinars over the years, it's just, it's been amazing to see how, how the company has grown. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and, you know, we've seen the growth as well. I mean, our group also uses Madison Specs for a lot of their cost, uh, cost segregation studies, but to kind of go in, you know, if you had to describe someone that doesn't even know what cost segregation or even depreciation is, do you mind kind of explaining what that is to someone that might not even be aware that that's a possibility in real estate? Absolutely. So very basically, cost segregation is a income tax deduction that you get by buying a commercial or residential property. So anything besides your personal residence, if it is an income producing or, or a, uh, investment or business property, you're able to take this tax deduction. And it's based on the principle that uh, of depreciation. So the name, not to be confused with the actual meaning of the word, and this is where a lot of people get thrown yeah. up, mm -hmm. like depreciation sounds like negative, like I don't want my property to go down in value. And I've actually had people say that to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and what we need to understand is it, it's just a borrowed term. It's a name that the IRS gave to this tax deduction that literally allows you to write off the entire value of your property uh, by buying it. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's an incentive, obviously, to help people put their money, uh, have less tax liability, reinvest. Real estate is obviously a great tool for that. And so that's what depreciation is. And cost segregation is really just an advanced form of that. So instead of taking a little bit each year for your depreciation deduction and spreading it over you know, a long period of time, 27 and a half or 39 years, these kind of arbitrary numbers that the government gave, cost segregation allows you to break down the property into its individual components. And some of those components actually depreciate faster. And so you're able to take bigger deductions in the earlier years of ownership. So very simply put, it's a tax deduction that allows you to have more cash flow by having mm -hmm. more uh, deductions in the earlier years. Yeah. And you, I think you touched on like straight line depreciation and how that kind of contrasts with uh, like cost segregation, which is what you guys do. Can you expand on the difference between those two? Because I think the people that have heard about depreciation are more familiar with that, the latter. Yeah, so straight line depreciation is pretty simple, meaning you take your, your property, say you buy something for a million dollars, and you take off a certain amount for the land, which does not depreciate, and then you spread that out over a 27 and a half year period. 
Um, the cost segregation method is really just finding certain items through an engineering process of breaking down the building into its components. And it used to be called component depreciation, which, which makes a lot more sense and relatable yeah. than cost segregation. Like you have to explain that to people. No, we're not, you know, this is, this is a tax write-off here. We're talking about, uh, and what we do is certain components actually depreciate on a five-year or seven or 15-year schedule, which are faster than that straight line uh, depreciation schedule. So it's really just a method of taking those deductions, identifying what they are, and then taking bigger lump sum. Like if you imagine uh, like you have this pool of potential deductions and you can pull from that and kind of front load a certain, you know, 20, 30% or so to the first year or to the first few years, it's just, it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and to all of our listeners listening out there, this is why the wealthy and um, just us in general and anyone that invests in real estate, this is a huge benefit as to why people choose to invest in real estate because they can use that, you know, depreciation in general, but also cost segregation to offset their taxes. And uh, it's a huge benefit for, for yeah. real estate investors. And it's specifically for real estate professionals, which I do want to touch on, but- Yeah, we're not a CPA, but yes. yes. No, but in general, because like I, I believe, for, we might as well touch on it now then. Real estate professionals are the ones that really get to maximize the benefits when it comes to these. Can you maybe expand on, well, first, what a real estate professional is and then um, what the benefits of it are when it comes to cost segregation studies? Yeah, that's that's correct. And it's a really good point. A lot of people like to sugarcoat cost segregation. It's like, yeah, this is the best thing in the world for everyone. And but you're absolutely right. A real estate professional is a basically when you on your tax return, you have to write what your occupation is. If you write real estate professional, that's actually a definition by the IRS that says mm -hmm. that you spend more than 50% of your time materially participating in a real estate trade or business, which means that you don't have another full-time job and you are either a broker or you're uh, you know, doing management, you own your own properties and you're managing them, doing renovations, construction, you know, basically anything that involves the you know, management and, and running of a rental property business. And so you may only have a, one or two or a few properties, as long as you're spending enough time and, and you don't have another full-time job, you have you or your spouse, which is the amazing thing, only one of you needs this status and you now have this special tax status in the eyes of the IRS. What does that mean and how does that apply? Like you said, they're the only ones that really get the most benefit from the deductions, from conservation, from depreciation. The reason why that is, is because income is treated differently. Your income from your real estate, your rental properties is treated as what's called passive income, even though it may not be passive, but it's yeah. called passive income. It's on your schedule E and any income that is quote unquote active income, meaning on your schedule C, you have a W-2, you 1099, you have any other sources of income, that's all treated as active income and separate from your rental income. So those two different sources of income are treated separately and therefore are taxed at different rates sometimes and- mm -hmm. The depreciation, which is a passive income, uh, excuse me, a passive deduction or a passive loss is used solely to offset your passive income, that bucket of rental property. Or if you have other sources of passive income, like royalties or a passive business interest, does not include stocks or anything like that. That's still considered active. Um, but all of those passive activities can be treated with and use the depreciation. The kicker is with the real estate professional status, and you guys can look this up. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes listed as reps, REPS, real estate professional status. And my good friend, Brandon Hall, the real estate CPA actually has a guide 
which breaks it down. Unbelievable resource, which just breaks down all the definitions, everything you ever needed to know about this status and how to get it and how to maintain it because it is looked at on a year by year basis. Um, that allows you to use those passive deductions are no longer just limited to your passive income bucket. It's actually then can be used against your active income as well. So a classic example is a real estate broker who owns some rental properties as well. And I always urge anyone who has a real estate broker's license, and that's your that's your thing, you're a broker, mm -hmm. you're an agent, you're a realtor, you automatically have the real estate professional status, but you also need to own rentals and, and materially participate in the management of them at least 500 hours a year. And then you can get these deductions. What does that mean? Let's say you make a million dollars from your, you know, rental. You're a great, you know, top 1% agent. You're paying a lot of taxes on that, right? Yeah. Well, if you own a rental property or a couple and you can do cost segregation, you could potentially get, um, you know, a million dollars of depreciation. I had, had a guy, perfect example, bought a $5 million property. Um, uh, it was in, in California, actually. So it was I think it was like 20 units or something like that. Yeah. Like you can imagine like, you know, think about the, 20, the cost yeah. per unit there. It's just yeah, like, that's crazy. It's crazy, but he he bought it and, you know, with, with little money down mm -hmm. and was able to pull out, you know, over 20% of the depreciation of the first year and get a million dollar tax write-off and literally went from the year before paying like, you know, three, $400,000 in income tax. Yeah. He was able to literally knock that down to zero. So- I mean, otherwise, if you're not a real estate professional and you're just making a million dollars high W-2, well, the those losses can only be used against any rental income you have. Your W-2 is still going to be taxed at a high rate. Well, that's awesome. And I'd love to know, because you're also like, I'm sure you're, I, you, I believe your bio, you says you're an investor, but you also work on the plus seg. <clears throat> so you're technically like a real estate professional as well, but not really, you don't, I guess your, your role in your job doesn't require you to have assets. Um, can you maybe expand on how you're taking advantage of the real estate professional in your own life and finances? So personally, I'm not yet. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I would, you know, it is a goal of mine at some point, although what I am doing this year is, um, is something else, which is related. And I'll get to that in a second mm -hmm. with short-term rentals, because there is a, there's an ability there, even if without the real estate professional status. So being in the real estate industry does not necessarily make you a real estate professional. So if you're a mortgage broker, if you work for a conservation company, even though you're fully involved in real estate all day long, every day, the IRS still does not define you as a real estate professional. You actually, they have like a, a very finite list of activities, right? And it's like construction, right? Managing, operating, brokering. And so it doesn't matter that you're a mortgage broker or, and you're doing that all mm -hmm. day long or you're a cost expert or things like that. Even if you work for a real estate investment company, but you're an employee and you don't actually own shares or own at least 5% of the company or 5% in each property, you're also not a real estate professional, which, which kind of sucks because you're like, well, I am, but no, not according to the IRS. Yeah. Uh, and so they have weird definitions. That's how it works. So for me personally, what I'm, I am working towards that uh, eventually to do that. But one thing I am working on actively is what's called the, it's, Going around, I don't know if you come across this, the short-term yeah. rental loophole. You guys come across that one yet? No, I, I, I've heard of it, but I, don't, I haven't actually dived into it. So yeah, please enlighten us. Yeah, so it's really cool. I mean, they call it a loophole. It's not. It's really just a rule in the passive mm -hmm. activity rules that a lot of accountants don't even know about. And it was kind of 
become more popular lately just because there's been so much activity in the Airbnb, the short-term rental space mm. over the past few years, I think has gotten more attention. And what, what it says is that if, the, if you own a short-term rental and you are self-managing, which is really important because if you don't have a manager, you know, property manager, this does not apply. But if you are self-managing and the average stay is less than seven days, the IRS treats it as a transient property, in which case it's more like a business with regards to depreciation. And it says that you can now use your, your losses the deductions, depreciation from that property to offset your active income, because this property is treated like an active income, even though, and it is confusing, a lot of accountants get this wrong, because it's still in your Schedule E, which is your rental, you know, listing your rental properties, but it's treated with the passive activity rules, treated separately. So I'm not going to get into too, you know, gory details here, but simply put, even without the real estate professional status, if you have a W-2, you have any job whatsoever, and you own a short, even one short-term rental, the law, the rules are so 100 hours a year mm-hmm. of material participation, which basically if you're setting up, if you're buying, if you're dealing with, uh, you know, and, and vendors, that that's really in the you know, hundred hours a year, plus more than anyone else. And you get that, which means, I know a ton of people who aren't real estate professionals and are still doing cost segregation on their short-term rental properties and uh, and using the same advantage, the same activity. I love that. And short-term rentals is really hot right now. So I think that's very applicable, really uh, relevant and like timely for our audience because I'm sure people in the audience are going to be either interested in pursuing short-term rentals. I know a guy that I just met uh, not that long ago and and he was actually pursuing that as well because he's just getting into the industry. So it seems like wholesaling was popping back then. Now now it's short-term rentals and soon hopefully it'll be apartments again because I think it's a cycle. (laughs) So, but just kind of touching back, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's pretty great insight and we love, uh, we are appreciative of you sharing that, but just kind of going back to, you know, doing the studies itself, you mentioned engineers going out and kind of taking a look at the property and, you know, just assessing what can be depreciated or what technically depreciates faster. What kind of things are they looking for? Like when they go out and, and what kind of like time frame is someone looking at when they do go out? Sure. Absolutely. And as we mentioned before, it's an engineering kind of breaking down of the property. So we do have engineers and we have like 16, 17, I lost count how many on yeah. staff currently. Um, and what they'll do is they're e- they'll either travel to the property or actually when COVID hit, we started transitioning to do a lot of them virtually. Uh, okay. Some types of properties, not all, but that we can just have a video call with our engineer. And what they're looking for is they're, they're looking to break down the structure, right? You have things that are the walls, doors, windows, floor, yeah. foundation, right? Infrastructure things. The value of those components are 27 and a half year. That's the longer depreciation schedule. But the things that break out and are faster on a five-year schedule is essentially anything non-structural in the eyes of the IRS. And that it still, can still be attached. So think about like appliances or furniture or equipment. You know, you know, you can move them around. That's clearly what's called personal property or movable tangible property, all that depreciates on a five-year schedule, but even things that are non-structural that are attached, like the flooring, if it's a vinyl or carpeting, that's considered five-year property. Whereas if you have tile flooring, that's considered attached permanently and is considered structural. So there are certain nuances to that, which will make a difference on how much of the value you can actually depreciate faster. Uh, Other things include fixtures or even millwork or window treatments, shelving, cabinets, countertops, things like that. 
all of those things will depreciate faster. So when we're looking at a uh, an apartment building, for example, uh, a multifamily, you know, it can it can, it adds up. You know, you're looking yeah. at in each unit, and it can be sometimes twenty or twenty five percent of the of the value of the property that can go into these faster depreciation assets. In terms of doing and actually conducting a cost segregation study, I'm sure some investors are going to be wondering, like, is it even worth them even doing it? Um, what kind of properties maybe, and this is leading into my question, what type of property would it be more beneficial to have a cost segregation study and when might it not even be worth it? And I believe uh, if you want to expand on like the smaller property versus the larger property, but also different asset classes. Sure. there. It's a really good question because it depends. I mean, it mm-hmm. really does. There are so many different aspects types of properties, but I have some general rule of thumbs. And, mm-hmm. and one thing, once we cover those rule of thumbs, it's important to realize that most companies and Madison Specs including will provide an upfront free analysis of any property to show you what the potential tax savings are. So you can know ahead of time what you're looking at. So I'm gonna tell you some general rule of thumbs, but you know, if you have an individual case and you're like, mm-hmm. hey, I really wonder, I'm about to buy this property or I did buy this property, whatever. I wonder how much it would make a difference. Well, just reach out and, and you can know, right? It's not yeah, a it's yeah. not a secret, but yeah. there are some general rules. So I think any property, any property whatsoever, over a half a million dollar purchase price is is usually a no-brainer. Um, there are certain types of properties that even a smaller amount, a uh, lower amount can be beneficial. Like I mentioned, the Airbnb properties, there's a ton of fixtures and amenities and, and appliances and furnishings and things like that. So the percentage of the cost irrigation will actually be higher than uh, than another type of property, like another type of single family long-term rental where you may not own the furniture and appliances, for example. Yeah. Um, warehouses are like on the low end of the spectrum. So if you can imagine, there's pretty, pretty much not yeah. much there. Maybe you have some shelving, maybe you have some security uh, systems and things like that mm-hmm. that are going to be five-year. Everything else is going to be structural, except for you may have landscaping and, and land improvements that we didn't mention before, but those are 15-year. Those actually are depreciated faster as well. So you can have benefit there. On the high end of the spectrum are, um, and so again, warehouses may be like about 10% that you can depreciate of the property Mm. in faster depreciation. Whereas on the high end, you have things like mobile home parks or RV parks, which again, also are are things that have become a little more popular recently or golf courses. All those, what they have in common is the majority of what you're buying is actually the land improvements. So Mm. land doesn't depreciate. So that you're not going to be able to depreciate, but what's on top of the land, that's what's important, can. So if you buy a mobile home park, for example, you don't yeah. even own any of the homes. You may, the tenants may own all their homes. You just own like maybe a clubhouse. And what's really important is all the concrete, right? You have concrete slabs under each home or, or pavement, driveways, uh, you know, the streets in that park and the landscaping and fencing and all those things actually are considered 15-year depreciation assets. And why that's important is that you can take it all up front in the first year with something called 100% bonus depreciation. And, uh, and so mobile home parks can be literally between 50 to 80% of your purchase price you can literally get as a first year tax write-off. So that's, that's huge. And then in the middle, you'll have things like multifamily, you know, self-storage, office, retail, generally, you know, kind of fluctuate between, you know, 20 to 30% of the, of the, of the tax basis, the amount you can depreciate of the property to a faster scale. Yeah. And that's a big portion of, you know, that's a great breakdown as to what, you know, different asset class can provide. But my question was from earlier. 
So I'm sure you work with a lot of different investors, you know, different asset classes, but I'm sure a, a good portion of investors, especially in multifamily space, are value-add investors. So these investors, you know, we're obviously, you know, we're also value-add investors, but we're also going in with a business plan to renovate and spend, you know, one, mm-hmm. two, maybe more uh, million dollars on improving the property itself. So with those kind of investors, do you, you typically advise them to do a cost segregation study beforehand and then after the improvements? And is that what they typically do or what kind of advice would you give them? So it really does depend because there are certain scenarios where the advice would change. But I'm really glad you brought this up because it is something that is very, very common, right? If you buy a property, when we're doing a consideration, we're looking at the purchase price and we're looking at the property as is and basically breaking down that depreciation so you can take those deductions. And the depreciation, the amount you can actually depreciate is solely based on the purchase price. So even if it goes up in value, the depreciation amount doesn't change. If you get an appraised at a higher value, the depreciation amount never changes. The only time it does change is when you actually do a value add, when you add more money into the property. And so if the property is rented out, right, after you purchase it, and uh, especially if the, you know, the value add and the cap, capital improvements are done in the following year, right? Even if it's done in the same year, but as long as it's rented out first, you're able to capture on both, meaning you're able to take the consideration on the acquisition and then whatever money is spent on the improvements, you can depreciate that as well, or you should depreciate all that money. And you can do a, a separate consideration study just on that money spent. So you can we can break down that. And oftentimes it's going to be a much higher percentage is going towards those depreciation because often you're not doing major structural improvements, maybe doing some, um, but generally speaking, maybe putting in new kitchens, putting in new flooring, new cabinets, things like that. All of those things are, are typically faster, right? The five-year mm-hmm. personal property, faster depreciation things. And so it can be done uh, on a yearly basis, but usually what people will do is they'll do that follow-up renovations study uh, either you know, in the following year or once the full renovations have been completed. And again, there are certain scenarios where it's not possible to do both. Uh, you may only be able to do one or the other. And a great example of that is if you buy a vacant property and it's not rented out and you gut it and you you do all yeah. the renovations. Unfortunately, in that case, you cannot do a conservation on the purchase. So you kind of uh, miss yeah. out on the whole, you know, a huge amount of purchase price. Yeah. You're missing out a huge amount there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and just to touch on that, I mean, um, that's, yeah, I mean, that makes perfectly good sense. You know, you can kind of get back somewhat of the money that you're spending on the property, which is great. Um, but you know, at the moment, you know, we're kind of, we're all experiencing some really crazy times, you know, with lenders, less leverage, and that kind of impacts us, of course, as buyers and buying properties and of course, sellers as selling properties. But from my experience or what I've been seeing lately, it also affects depreciation and what people are getting on cost segregation up front and things like that. So what have you been seeing, I guess, as of recently and, and what, how, how can we, I guess, improve or get more money potentially up front as a cost seg? Absolutely. The, the main thing that is going, and I mentioned that it is your depreciation amount that you can take from is totally based on your purchase price. Okay. However, it doesn't matter who's spending that money, meaning if it's the investors or equity or down payment, cash, whatever it is, or if it's the bank financing it. And so the, 
if you buy, let's just quick example, buy a million dollar property and you're putting 20% down payment, right? And get 80% leverage, right? That's great. And it used to be something people were doing all the time. I think maybe, you know, people are more conservative at this point and, yeah. and getting lower leverage. But if you do that, then you will get, you know, to take depreciation based on that million dollars, not based on the $200,000 you put down. And therefore, the amount of depreciation you'll get back in the first year with bonus depreciation is going to be a lot higher because proportionate to the amount of cash invested, that depreciation is higher. So if you get 20% of your property, right, you're getting a $200,000 bonus depreciation deduction in the first year, and you only put down $200,000. That's That totally is 100% of your investment back as a tax deduction. Now, take that same scenario, and let's say that you you know, bought it with only 50% leverage, right? And, yeah. or, or it, which is very common, a lot of people are raising extra equity for, you know, capital improvements or raising extra equity for extra reserves and things like that, where they may not have done that in previous, uh, previous times. Well, that amount of equity going in is going to drastically affect the amount of total depreciation you can get per the investment. And so without getting too complicated in numbers here, it just, it diminishes the amount of depreciation that you can get, the more equity you are raising uh, compared to the amount of financing that the bank is putting in. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that you kind of broke it down, especially right now, because like Kenneth said, we have seen some changes and I think um, things are always changing, and especially because I believe a, a, a previous administration had like certain cost seg benefits and depreciation benefits that um, I believe are changing. And um, so I, was, I did want to get that update from you. Um, do you have anything else to add about like where we are in today in terms of the cost seg and uh, maybe where you see it going forward? Yeah. And because yeah. like my brother mentioned, because it is, it is supposed to be phasing out, I think, I believe after this year is going to be the last year where you can get 100% and then it'll be phased out over the next you know few years or so. Exactly. So there was this uh, what's called bonus depreciation. We touched on it briefly, which allows you to take 100% of those accelerated depreciation deductions in the first year. That was came about through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017 mm -hmm. and is set to start phasing out next year. So 2022 is the last year that you can take 100% of those deductions um, in the first year. You can still do cost segregation. That's never, that's not going away. I, I can't say never because you never know what, yeah. never say never. Yeah. But the uh, the 2023 will go down to 80% bonus. I mean, you can take 80% of those accelerated deductions in the first year. The remaining 20%, you can still spread over the cost variation five, 15 year schedule. So that's the main change that is happening with regards to, to cost seg. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it is time for our speed round. Yuna, are you ready? Oh, wow. Time flies. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I'm, well, let's I'm get, ready. Let's get into it. So, uh, first, I wanted to ask, has there been one thing that you're doing differently today that you weren't doing when you first started in real estate? Or maybe if you've worked with clients, something that a lot of times like you see the newer people not doing that the more experienced investors are. Either way, either approach you want to take. Yeah, I think the one, I mean, many things I'm doing differently now, but one thing that comes to mind is, is you know, I have an, I have an assistant. Actually, I have two assistants now. So that's yes. that's a huge huge benefit, meaning it used to be so much back and forth, so much time being spent in emails and, and communication, things like that. And a lot of that has been streamlined more. So getting an assistant, a virtual assistant or, or not, doesn't matter. Just having someone else um, on your awesome. team to, to help you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great tip. Uh, and that's probably something we should look yeah. into. <laughs> we're, 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 um, I mean, it's our first hire. 
Awesome. So for the second question, uh, in business, what has been your biggest failure and uh, how did you overcome it? Or learning lesson. Or learning lesson. Yeah. We like to call them lessons. Yeah, they are definitely lessons. They're definitely learning lessons. I don't believe in failures. I think uh, everything fail is the acronym, right? First yeah. attempt in learning. Yeah, I'm sure you guys uh, seen love that. Before. Yeah. Love that. You know, that's a, that's a good meme right there. Yes. There yeah. <laughs> I'm going to hashtag that. <laughs> Oh, there you go. I got for your, got for your thumbnail. Okay. But <laughs> I'm going to use that actually. So. <laughs> um, so failure, a, a big one for me, and this happened really early on kind of in, in sales and in the COSEG was that, and this happens to so many of us all the time. We have this kind of like shiny object syndrome, mm, right? Yeah. Where we're thinking like, Oh, this huge deal. It's like the best deal, you know, and this happened to me once when I was, when I was doing a mortgage brokering, I also had like this huge, like, you know, $300 million deal. And it was like, you know, you put so much thought into it and Mm -hmm. time into it and everything like that. And um, so the biggest failure for me was something similar where I had someone who just requested like, you know, 26 cost segregation studies on like, you know, all shopping malls. It was like this huge project, right? So mm-hmm. it was going to be a, a big deal for our company. It was going to be a big deal for everyone involved. But right at the beginning, the guy like requested a discount. And like, to me, when someone does that nowadays, it kind of triggers a little bit of a red flag. Um, not always because it looks in everyone. And there's certain different cultures also, also, which I totally respect. I know there's certain cultures where you have to, like it's, you can't not, request a discount. It's just part of your culture. Yeah. Um, so I respect that. I understand that. But this guy just kind of seemed a little bit shady and was like, oh, that's way too much. Let's get it for like half the amount. I was like, what? Like, you don't understand the value, like millions, like tens of millions of dollars in tax savings. And you're worried about like a $5,000 like mm-hmm. fee. Like to me, that was a red flag. It turned out this guy ended up being the worst uh, like client ever, ever, ever. And um so that was a big lesson for me. It's like, don't think about like the big deal and the huge sale or the huge commission or whatever it is that's going to be in your mind. Like this is going to be huge. Like look at the facts, humble yourself, ask advice from someone else who, who may be more experienced than you uh, and kind of get over that. So that was yeah. a big lesson for me. It also sounds like your, your gut was maybe telling you something. And so also trusting your gut and your instincts. All your gut, 100%. I love it. I yeah. love it. Awesome. Well, if you had one book or uh, that, that has impacted you in terms of your personal life or business or both, what would that book be? So personal life, I'll, I'll share one. I mean, the seven habits of highly effective people is one of my top books for, you know, business and personal. It's just been incredible. Um, so I'll just leave it with that. that that's, awesome. a, that's a good one. Awesome. awesome. And then uh, the following question, what is your long-term goals for your business? And if you'd like to share personal goals, you can do that as well. I want to be able to streamline a lot more of the process where I'm you know, able to free up as much time as possible, bring on more assistance, more uh, people on the, in the back office. And we have an incredible company. I mean, it's like 60 people. It's a, it's a huge company mm-hmm. um, and they're doing great, streamline a lot of processes. I just want to continue doing that. So that's kind of my goal to be able to take off a lot more time than I am, even though I don't really work. I just, I kind of play on social media and do podcasts all day. So that's (laughs) not really like work, but that's, that's for me, uh, a big goal. That's awesome. I love it. And you shared a ton of wisdom today. If there was one piece of advice that you'd want our audience to walk away with from today's episode, what would that be? You know, I think it's probably something that you guys share often, but is that just be learn, like continue your education power, right. Is in, is in the knowledge when you just listen to podcasts like this, 
And you're never too young, right? You're never too old. You're never too anything to ask questions and to learn and educate yourself. There's so many like cost irrigation. Like, what is that? I'm sure people listening to this, if you're still listening to the end, right? And you've enjoyed (laughs) this and you were one of those people that at the beginning was like, what in the world is cost irrigation? I have no idea. Well, guess what? There are probably dozens of other things like that that can save you or help you, um, you know, a huge amount, but you just have to, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, I agree. And I think people just have to remain curious. Like that's one of the traits that, I think is a big indicator of how successful you'll be. And a lot of people lose it. So it's kind of sad, but stay curious guys. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Yona. it was a pleasure chatting with you. If anyone in our audience wants to learn more about you or just follow you on your journey, where can they go to find out more? Well, you can always find me on LinkedIn. That's actually where I'm most active. I'm on all the socials, but LinkedIn is where I'm most active. Definitely send me a connection request with a little note saying that you (laughs) listened to me on this podcast, or you can go to yonaweiss.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Yona. And thanks everyone for tuning in today to the Real Estate Monopoly. Kenny, where can they drop a five-star review? Yes, you can You can find us on uh, Apple, uh, Apple Spotify, Spotify, pretty much everywhere that yeah. you can listen to podcasts. So wherever you're listening, your preferred uh, listening place, drop us a five-star review, comment, ask questions, and we'll make sure we answer yes. them. And guys, let's get out there and take action. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Yes. Have a great one.